everyone. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. I recently had the privilege of speaking with A.M. Gitlitz, a journalist and social critic based in Brooklyn, New York, about his 2020 book, I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. This conversation digs into the strange intersection of left-wing political organizing with ufology, apocalypticism, and more. If you floated around left-wing online spaces in 2016 and 2017, you undoubtedly ran across Posadism in the form of memes featuring dolphins, UFOs, and alien comrades from across the stars. In today's podcast, we dig into some of the real history behind these memes, including the elusive Jay Posadas, while also looking at the way that this very real political movement devolved first into a personality cult, and then later re-emerged as a meme-based performance art piece. You can find us over at warmachinepodcast.com, and feel free to head over and leave us a message for us to respond to. We love to hear from our listeners. And so without further ado, A.M. Gitlitz on Posadism and Apocalyptic Communism. I was just hanging out with Comrade Communicator this weekend, so... Oh, awesome. Is he from New York? He he lives in Coney Islands. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, so I, I don't know much about him except that way back, maybe in like 2017, 2018, um, I think he was on um, either the Diet Soap or Zero Squared, whatever the right. Douglas Lane thing was called at that time. Uh, and so they did a, an interview where the first half of the interview he did in character, and then the second half they sort of talked about the... Yeah, I was really disappointed that he broke kayfabe for that. Um, <laughs> I, I thought he had like a bright future of just convincing people that that's who he was and he was a real person, but uh, he couldn't help himself. What is Comrade High Commander's new synthesis? It is a Posadism of the 21st century. It is socialism that takes the future seriously instead of endlessly attempting to reenact the past. It is a stand against bourgeois romantic technophobia and neophobia whether it may characterize itself as right or left. It is an understanding that we can't do it on our own, and a call to reach out to others who may offer us new insights into our world and into ourselves. It is the only genuine Marxism left on this planet, and it is our only hope. Welcome, friends. Uh, we are joined today by A.M. Gitlitz, the author of I Want to Believe, uh, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Um, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining with The War Machine today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wonder, uh, as, as we get started here, uh, if you could talk a little bit about um, how you became interested in this sort of niche topic. Well, I was going to uh, I started as a 
Okay, so I'll start and say I, I, I had heard of Posadas many years ago when someone had told me about biocosmism and mortalism, which was like a, a, a sort of an esoteric Bolshevik tendency that believed in, you know, uh, trying to have people live forever and travel through space. And I just thought that was such a, a beautiful dream and I wanted to learn more about it. And so learning about that, I think in the early 2010s, I, uh, you know, I learned about these different sort of bizarre uh, cosmist sects and Posadas, even though he was not, a, a, you know, of the Bolshevik cosmist tendency, he came along much later, um, was always mentioned. And uh, so I was always interested in Posadas. And around 2016, 2017, he became really well known in memes. Um, and my friend, Comrade Communicator, had this meme page. Um, and uh, so him and I were talking about writing some sort of science fiction uh, book or short story about Posadism. And as I was researching it, I, I, I realized that this was a real person. This person, you know, had uh, his own, he was like the leader of the Trotskyists in, in Latin America for quite a while. And um, there's a real history there that no one's really bothered to explore. And so um, I wrote a little something about the significance of the Posadist memes and uh, uh, some people um, who I really respect were uh, really interested in, in me writing more about it. And so I, uh, I, I ended up, uh, you know, spending a couple of years just going to archives in Europe and South America and the United States, Mexico, and uh, actually uh, uncovering the history of this group. Um, and so the book, you know, it talks about uh, the real history of the group. And then uh, the last part is about how they it, it reemerged in meme form and and how Passage became such a, a popular name in the history of Trotskyism to the extent that uh, if you search him on Google, uh, his name is uh, uh, ha has had more searches um, than most of the other Trotskyist leaders uh, of that of the time that he was active and uh, at times even more popular than Trotsky himself. Yeah, I remember that period of like 2016, 2017 when it became huge. I was at a, um, a sort of leftist Halloween party um, and uh, the costume I went in was um, the, I went dressed as the DSA Dank meme stash. Uh, uh, and so I had like, you know, like a, like a spoopy skeleton and like all of these memes from the time. And I remember that I had like UFO pin and in a couple, you know, a dolphin and all of these classic uh, kind of Posadist imagery uh, pieces when I went, uh, went to that, that party. And I really think there was a sense in which for, you know, probably two years, uh, it really kind of saturated, you know, the leftist meme sphere sort of left book places. Yeah, I wrote, wrote about this a little bit in the book, but there was actually a Posadist caucus in the New York City DSA. And uh, it, it was my impression that they were just throwing fundraiser parties like they threw a fundraiser party for uh, I think it was Hurricane Maria uh, relief. And um but uh, apparently there is actually a, a purge of the DSA Posadas caucus because they were, uh, even though it was satirical, they were considered a, uh, a secret sect and there was some DSA rule against that. So some members of the Posadas caucus actually told me that they were sat down by you know, uh, DSA reps and said, are you part of this group? Are you now or have you ever been a Posadas? And it was actually kind of a serious purge for a second or uh, threatened to be. Uh, but they, they uh, disbanded or at least went underground. <laughs> uh, much like the Picatus did in Cuba, actually. Yeah, I, 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 um, 
uh, I like the idea of, of there maybe being an underground DSA Posada sect to this day. I think that's um, it's whether it's true or not. I think it's the myth I'm going to go with. Um, it might be half true. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to believe, I guess. <laughs> um, so in order to make sense of Posadism, like the, the real actual kind of pre-meme Posadism, uh, you really have to make sense of it in light of Trotskyism. Um, I know that that some of our listeners are are going to have a lot of familiarity with, with left history and, and revolutionary movements of the 20th century, um, but there's probably also a lot of our listeners who come more from the religious studies or the theological background who might not have a ton of experience. So I wonder if you could just trace out, you know, who was Trotsky? What was his relationship to the Soviet Union? And, and how did Trotskyism emerge out of Bolshevism? And, and a little bit of those details. OK, I'll try to do that as fast as possible. So uh, <laughs> Trotsky was a Russian revolutionary. Uh, he was uh, especially radicalized around the 1905 uh, revolution. Uh, he was not a uh, Bolshevik uh, until 1917 when he returns to Russia after the the, the February Revolution and um, joins Lenin to become uh, one of the leaders of the Bolsheviks, uh, arguably the, the the most important next to Lenin, um, leads the Red Army during the, the Civil War in which the Bolsheviks were victorious. And then um, after that, um, somewhat, you know, is, is very influential as the Soviet Union forms. It fades from power, uh, is outmaneuvered by Stalin for leadership of the Soviet Union. Um, and is eventually exiled by Stalin, uh, uh, considering him uh, uh, the left opposition or the leader of the left opposition. Um, and throughout the 30s, he's in exile, you know, basically going from country to country, fleeing uh, the, the communists in those countries, the, the militants of the communist parties um, who have become agents of Stalin, uh, essentially uh, agents of the Soviet Union, so no longer necessarily about workers' revolution in all countries, but now about the foreign policy of the, the Soviet Union. Um, and Trotsky eventually settles in Mexico, uh, and uh, he, uh, before he's killed by Stalin um, on the, the eve of World War II, he, he launches the Fourth International, um, at, uh, which is supposed to be a, a new communist international that is true to the Leninist Bolshevik principles, uh, but it's very small. It only comprises of a handful of his most ardent followers. You know, a lot of other people from the left opposition disagreed that it was the right time. But uh, basically, Trotsky believed that despite the uh, how small the Fourth International was, that well, a world war was coming, that Stalin would be defeated. Um, it would be a, uh, a war that would be so much more catastrophic than World War One. Uh, and since World War One ended in a revolution, World War Two would end in this like total revolution. And uh, as Stalin is defeated, the, the workers are going to look for leadership and they would find leadership in the Fourth International. So um, that doesn't happen. Trotsky is killed. Most of the Trotskyists are killed in the course of the war uh, by Nazis and by Stalinists. Um, and so uh, after the war, the Trotskyists... Uh, aren't really sure what to do because Trotsky made these grand predictions and they did not come to pass. Um, so the dominant tendency within the fourth international led by uh, Michel Pablo, um, a, a Greek French Trotskyist uh, is that the war didn't actually end or it's just on pause. And actually 
uh, capitalism is in crisis, it's going to collapse. Um, and before it does, it's going to launch a nuclear World War III. Uh, and so the Trotskyists after World War II are preparing for this. And uh, so this is the moment when uh, Posadas becomes a leader in the, the Fourth International in Latin America. And so his uh, chauvinism for nuclear war uh, was not, in fact, uh, some crazy thing that he came up with. Uh, it was the official line of the Fourth International. And, and that was probably one of the things in your book that was the most shocking to me or, or like surprising to me was there was always I always had a sense that that sort of nuclear catastrophism was something unique to the sort of Posadism um, wing or branch of Trotskyism. And yet it seems like it was really at the root of 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 not only Trotskyism, but even the late Trotsky's thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what Trotsky would have thought about a, a, a nuclear war, um, but but certainly he did have uh, some ideas going into World War II that uh, something like the worse, the better, a, a sort of catastrophist prediction that um, the, the war would lead to a, a revolution, which it did not. Mm-hmm. And um, moving into the 50s, the Trotskyists began to realize by and large that capitalism was not in crisis, that the USSR was not ready to uh, or not willing to fight um, the imperialist states uh, one-on-one, uh, that they were moving towards a, uh, um, a policy of peaceful coexistence. And so uh, the Trotskyists in Europe, um, by and large, back away from this position. A lot of Trotskyists split off before that, but even the Pabloists towards the end of the 50s um, stopped talking about nuclear war as such like a a, uh, a certainty or a, a something that's desirable. So it's around this time that in the midst of a leadership struggle um, in which Posadas uh, attempts to take over the international and move it to uh, Montevideo or Uruguay, um, that his tendency splits off. And a major defining feature of his tendency is, is uh, nuclear chauvinism, the idea that the war is still inevitable, that capitalism is still in crisis and the collapse is imminent. And uh, it ought to come sooner rather than later. So that was something that did set him apart in the early 60s when the the Posadist Fourth International is uh, formed. Yeah. So um, before we talk about like Posadism, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, about his early life. I'm going to I'm going to call him Posadist. You can clarify that's that's his sort of uh, nom de guerre. Uh, But uh, could you talk a little bit about his life leading up to this moment where he attempts to seize control of of the Fourth International? Yeah. So like you said, uh, his, his real name is Omero Cristali. He was born in Buenos Aires in uh, I think it was 1912, I think. And um, so, you know, I, I opened the narrative of his, his life with what was his earliest memory that I could find, which was witnessing the Semana Tragica in, in Buenos Aires in 1919, which was the, you know, this near revolution, like something like the uh, the Russian Revolution uh, happened in a lot of places around the world. And in, in Argentina, it nearly happened in 1919, but it was suppressed in this uh, proto-fascist violence, um, pogroms against Jews and Catalans and uh, police murders and that sort of thing. So he witnessed this as a young child. His parents had been anarchists and then they moved to the Socialist Party as uh, really a lot of the working class in Argentina did. That was a very common uh, uh, thing that you you hear is that uh, during the, the first decade of the 20th century, 
a lot of Argentinian workers were anarchists. And then they, you know, uh, as as unions started to form, as the Argentinian culture started to formalize, um, the, the socialist parties became more popular. So he was a socialist militant um, in the 20s and 30s. He briefly had a career in uh, in soccer. He played for Estudiantes La Plata, which is still like a very uh, important team in Argentina. Um, and he was a very charismatic guy. People liked him. He liked to sing the tango. Um, and he was a really tireless militant uh, for the Socialist Party. Um, he was not considered particularly smart. Like He was not considered an intellectual. He didn't have much schooling. He was from an extremely working class, poor background. Um, and the Trotskyists in Argentina in the 30s were all bohemian intellectuals, you know, poets and uh, playwrights and uh, Dadaist artists and stuff like that. That's, that's who a lot of the major Trotskyists were in the 30s. So they saw this guy, uh, Homero Cristalli, writing about um, the Spanish Civil War, taking a position that was pretty close to theirs. And so they summoned him to their their cafe in uh, Buenos Aires and they um, they recruited him and they gave him a, a mission of organizing a shoe factory in Cordoba, a, a city in the center of Argentina. And he did a really good job. He organized a union at this massive shoe factory. And so they realized, well, you know, this guy might not be, uh, uh, he might not have read uh, all of Marx and Hegel, but he can talk to the workers. So he became a really important part of the Trotskyist movement um, beginning around 1935. Uh, and then after the war, he forms his own group. Um, he's in competition with uh, the group of Noel Moreno, who is much younger, also from this kind of intellectual uh, bourgeois bohemian backgrounds. Um, and by taking the position of Pablo uh, as the Fourth International Reforms in 1949-1950, um, his section is 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 uh, recognized as the official section of the Fourth International. Um, and now, uh, now Noel Moreno is, um, you know, a lot of the Trotskyists you meet are in groups that uh, come from Moreno's tendency. Um, but at the time, he was uh, outflanked by Posadas. So uh, if you were a Trotskyist in, in Argentina in the 50s, uh, likely you were, or actually in Latin America in general, is likely uh, Posadas was your leader. Excellent. And I, and I was intrigued at that about this, the sort of dynamic, the, the sort of kind of elitist uh, intellectual wing, and then this, this more sort of working class. And it, it really seemed like his success in his union um, in his like unionization efforts and things along those lines really just came from just a massive amount of persistence. So you talk a little bit about him going out day after day after day. Uh, is that, is that sort of a fair assessment here? Yeah, he, um, just, you know, like any good Trotskyist, he distributed the paper. Uh, he brought it to newsstands. He went out to the factory with uh, the leaflets. He he talked to workers. You know, he signed them up. He sang the International. He went to demonstrations. He got beat up by Stalinists. He he was doing the legwork. And I actually found this uh, this book by one of the um, one of the great Argentine Trotskyists um, that was, uh, you know, uh, basically his internal notes of the of Trotskyism um, in, uh, I believe it was, uh, 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 I, I forgot, like the early 40s maybe. Um, and they were, he was kind of like making fun of everybody in the Trotskyist movement. But when they got to Posadas, they said, well, this guy is basically a, a very competent, well-liked guy. So that was his reputation. But then when he becomes um, a Trotskyist leader, 
other Trotskyists like Noel Moreno is like, come on, you can't follow this guy. This guy's uh, not so bright. You know, I've read all of Marx. And there's a, a, a great quote from Posadas where he's making fun of Moreno saying, you know, um, that they met and uh, Moreno says, well, you know, I have read all three volumes of Marx's Capital. And Posada says, well, I've read all six. Uh, so, um, but what really was the secret behind um, Posadas, because the texts of the Posadas tendency, um, even reaching into the 60s, were very intellectual, um, you know, at least intellectually informed. But uh, that's because Posadas was this collective pen name for um, all of these intellectuals in the movement, including uh, Guillermo Almira and Adolfo Gili, like people who, uh, if you're a Latin American leftist, you probably know those names because uh, they became very important writers after leaving the Posadas movement or, or after being expelled in the mid 70s. Um, so uh, basically, uh, Posadas wasn't one person. Um, Omero Cristalli was the leader of the group and was sort of identified as Posadas. Um, but Posadas was all of the people sort of coming to a collective. That was like the democratic centralist body was signed their text as Posadas. But this changes in the 60s when the Posadas Fourth International forms. Posadas basically becomes a megalomaniac and he takes that Posadas name for himself. And um, little by little, he distances the intellectuals, makes them submit to him. And by the early 70s, the Posadas movement is basically a cult of personality around Homero Cristalli or uh, Posadas. And a lot of the militants didn't even read uh, Marx or Trotsky. They would just read Posadas. Yeah, this was, you know, something that was really surprising. You use that language of, of cult of personality. And there is a real sense by, you know, the 70s that, you know, this looks less like a recognizable militant, uh, like leftist movement um, than it does like, you know, David Koresh or, or, you know, the, the family or something along those lines. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that, that period as he, as he sort of develops this, this cult of personality around himself and some of the really strange dynamics around, you know, sexuality and, and separating family members and, and things like that, that happen. Well, Posadas always had an idea of, of revolutionary morality, which basically meant the way that you live your life as a militant in your cadre is supposed to reflect what uh, life under communism will be like, a, a prefigurative politics. And so um, pretty early in the Posadas Fourth International and even before that, um, there were some codes about how militants should act, uh, including about, uh, about sex, um, basically discouraging promiscuous sex, um, encouraging uh, people to get married, and then, you know, marriages and childbirth would be a decision of the party. So all your major life decisions, how you handle your money, your diet, everything like that would, uh, at, at, to some extent, be, um, you know, organized by the life of the party. Um, and so throughout the 60s, as Posadas becomes the, this uh, sole monolithic leader, that becomes more and more central. And uh, for example, what he would do is um, he would, uh, if there was a married couple, um, like uh, Almira, for, exi for example, was uh, married to um, an uh, Argentinian militant who's also very important to the party, he would just put them in, in separate countries. Like she stays in Argentina, you come to Rome with me. And 
the idea was it was both sort of a punishment, a way to get this guy to submit, but also that all his libidinal, libidinal energies or like his energy that devoted towards the love of his wife, towards having a family would be for the party. Um, so that's concerning. But, you know, if you're a communist militant, if you believe that uh, you have this unique role in uh, in changing the world, then maybe that is more important than having a family. Um, but uh, as Posadas gets more and more weird, more and more paranoid, um, he really uh, exploits this to the extent that uh, Posadism becomes um, like a lot of the new communist movements of the 70s, uh, which really resemble the new religious movements of the 70s as a experiment in communal living uh, that's basically reduced to the size of his villa outside Rome. He's exiled from uh, from Montevideo in, in 1969. He, he moves to Rome. He gets a lot of donations as like a, you know, considered to be an exile um, of these like growing anti-communist dictatorships. So he's got a lot of funds from that. And so basically there's like a, a sort of cult-like commune and uh, he expels in 1975 all of the old members, all of the old intellectuals. And so at, from 1975 until when he dies in 1981, um, it's all these very young militants around him who treat him as this uh, almost religious like master. And he's, he's claiming that his texts are being read by high up officials in China and the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, you know, all around the world, he, uh, his ideas are being read and shaping the course of history and this sort of thing. Um, and his militants believed it. And uh, um, at one point, he decides to uh, exile his wife, uh, Sierra, who is like a really important part of the movement. Um, and uh, by exile, I mean, he sends her to some, uh, I think, to Germany, to the chapter in Germany and he uh, marries a young militant and uh, uh, before he does that he exiles her boyfriend um, so uh, yeah he takes up he starts having sex basically with his young militants he has a child with one of them and he basically treats this child this this young girl Homerita as like the the star child the messianic figure who's gonna complete his life's work and so um, in his in his final years all of the work of the Pisatis movement is uh, focused on on educating uh, their future leader, this this young girl. Yeah, there's there's so much there that's that's so bizarre. You know, I'm, I can't help but think the, the idea of the of the militant libidinal energy that's that you have to conserve. Right. You, you see that same thing in like right wing movements right now. So you have like these sort of like like, you know, no fap movements and stuff like that that are like, you know, if you hold in all the sexual energy, it'll make you, you know, this super powerful militant, you know, right wing sort of fascist leader or something along those lines. And it really seems like there's a, a sort of similar logic operating here. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's very uh, ascetic. I think that the uh, like the proud boy, like no fap thing is um, I think that's more coming from a, a place of like uh, kind of self-help guru stuff like mm -hmm. um, because the proud boys, it, it sort of started as a way to like talk to these guys like incels, essentially, like, why are you watching porn all day? Um, you should go out there and like hit on chicks, basically. <laughs> um, so with with Posadas, it was it was more this idea that like under communism, all human relationships are going to be really transformed. 
And basically the body won't matter anymore because the body will just be like one with all bodies, with nature, with cosmos, with animals. And so these uh, neurotic sexual desires we have now are going to go away and sex will just be this like gross procreative uh, task. So this is coming from whatever weird sex stuff was going on in Posadas' head um, because apparently he didn't like sex very much until until later on in life. Um, so he, he wanted his militants to sort of live like him and not think too much about sex. Um, but that's also true of like how they use their time, how they use their money. Everything had to be for the party. Uh, you know, if you weren't doing enough work, you would be punished by being given more work. If you did all your work well, you would be rewarded by doing more work. Um, and so in that sense, uh, Posadism was not unique. Like that's, how uh, the sectarian Leninist groups uh, operated for most of their history after they stopped being a mass movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and today, you know, I think groups like, I don't know if you heard about like the CPI falling apart, like Ka- Caleb Maupin's group, um, but they just, operate just from like, the side. Yeah. 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 If you could, if you could explain that a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't want to get too much into it, but basically this was a Leninist group. Um, that fell apart over the last couple of weeks because uh, it was revealed the leader of the group was having, you know, being sexually predatory um, and financially predatory towards towards his militants. And reading the story, you know, it's disgusting. It's nothing I would want to subject myself to, but it's also a very familiar story in the history of Leninism. And um, a book by uh, uh, Teresh and, and Walforth called On the Edge, Political Cults of the Left and Right, argue that essentially what we understand as a cult now is if Leninism is done right, that it will be something like a cult. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like there's this line where there's a a proper Leninist group and a cult. Um, Actually, even without the sexual abuse uh, and and like idiosyncratic ideas, uh, a properly functioning Leninist group is something like a cult. And I think there's something to that. Um, And I think that's why both Leninist groups and cults are, are not doing well today. And would you say that this has something to do with the, the sort of groupthink aspect of, of, uh, of a centralism, of a democratic centralism where, you know, the group makes, makes all the decisions together and then you are sort of obligated to, to follow that position regardless of, of your own belief? Would you say that's the center of it or do you see something else as leading to this sort of culty tendency? Well, we, part of it is the democratic centralism, especially because uh, almost always um, the the democratic part of democratic centralism is really underemphasized. So it turns more into like democratic centralism. You know, <laughs> centralism is what's important. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I understand that makes sense, you know, especially, you know, the Bolsheviks uh, were, you know, an underground organization fighting the czar. There needs to be some sort of military like uh, discipline. Right. Um, and it's not like that's not necessary today in certain contexts. But when you combine that with this idea that, like, first of all, you are the people who are the inheritors of, uh, you know, this tendency of, of, of Marx, Engels and Lenin, um, you are in that you you are the correct, uh, you know, intellectual lineage. You're the people who really know the truth. You're the people who are understanding the world in the right way. Any of the people that understand that a revolution's coming and your group is going to have a crucial part in what happens. 
and might actually lead that revolution. And that revolution is going to be like a war revolution. There's going to be this big catastrophe, you know, or, you know, uh, capitalism is going to collapse and everything's going to fall apart. And you're, you militants, knowing this will happen and knowing what to do will play a crucial role in that. Um, this is a, a reasonable Leninist position. Uh, this was the position of Trotsky, but it's also the same thing cults say. And so I think at the point when the workers' movement, the socialist movement, uh, the revolutionary movement worldwide goes from millions of workers uh, willing to fight to uh, you know a handful of intellectual militants, then it's kind of unavoidable you end up with a cult. And, uh, you know, as somebody who comes out of uh, a sort of a religious studies, philosophy, religion background, you know, I can't help but notice the the way in which, you know, this is just a classic messianic structure. Right. And so there was there's, you know, a lot of work has been done on the way that uh, the messianic structure of early utopian socialism, for example, and and how there were religious motivations for for a lot of the proto-socialist groups. So you could think of the peasants' revolt in Germany with Munzer, or you know the diggers with with Winston Lee, and all of these these different groups that they had this, this sort of messianic impulse. And in some ways, this sort of seems like the um, uh, the return of the repressed in a certain sense, where that that messianic impulse uh, really comes to the fore at a point when there isn't like a direct conflict, right? And so like the, that sort of military discipline, like you, you, you noted, makes a lot of sense if you are in an imminent conflict with the czar. Um, but when it's, you know, 1974 and you're in a villa in Rome, uh, it doesn't quite, uh, it, it doesn't have the same sort of reason to be. Uh, and, it, and it seems like that is a, a really fertile ground for that messianic impulse to emerge as it does, for example, with his daughter. Well, I, I think messianism, and this is a pretty big question, but I think messianism is just sort of built into the, at least in the West, the way that we perceive time. So it's it's yeah. not so simple as just saying like it's appropriate in this instance and this instance is not appropriate. Like I think the way we do politics today, for example, is still like there's ecological collapse coming, there's fascism coming, there's all this stuff that's coming. Um, instead of like uh, a politics that's more focused on, you know, I'm living my life right now, I'm going to work today or tomorrow, um, I'm, you know, in this, I'm in like the class struggle every day and like I'm making choices every second about how to fight it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the world I want to make isn't actually like somewhere in the future where we're like holding hands and dancing in a field, but actually I can make the world I want to make right now. And how do I do that? Um, mm -hmm. That's usually not what socialists and communists do and think. There's some tendencies that think that way. Mm -hmm. um, but often we orient towards a messianic revolution, a final settlement of accounts, as Posada has called it, which uh, for him involved nuclear weapons and for us evolves, uh, you know, climate catastrophe or uh, or, uh, you know, a bank crash or, you know, uh, you know, the, the failure of supply lines or something. And, and I think what's really striking, you mentioned this in passing earlier is the, the sort of totalism of his vis vision in a certain sense, right? Where it's it's not simply that, you know, 
political structures or economic relations are going to be reformed but for him it's like nature itself is going to be reformed you know uh the animals will all live in harmony and 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 all of this so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about about the that sort of the the role of the natural world and um and maybe a little bit about um the what emerged again in in the meme reappropriation of Posadism, uh, which is the his deep in, uh, interest in in dolphins and dolphin intelligence and things along those lines. Right. So um, it's, it's really remarkable that the dolphin thing became part of a meme, uh, the meme, because uh, he really only wrote a, a couple things about dolphins or, or published a couple of things about dolphins. And it was just in his last couple of years of life. Um, and it came from him reading. I don't know if he's reading a tabloid or or like watching uh, like a paranormal show on TV or something. But he thought that the Soviet Union was doing experiments um, it, with childbirth, both in space and in the Black Sea, and that they believed that dolphins were um, these natural midwives that were helping to uh, birth uh, children in the Black Sea, and that the children that were born underwater with the help of the dolphin uh, ha- we're going to have some kind of superhuman powers. And um, that's those were the theories of Igor Tcharkovsky, who was a, uh, a Russian midwife, but he was not part of the, he was not like part of the state uh, program. He was actually in exile. He was actually exiled from the Soviet Union. And uh, some a lot of the um, writing on water birth comes from him. Uh, nonetheless, Posadis believed that the Soviet Union was making this sort of mystical advance. And where he saw that leaving was uh, leading was like I mentioned before this cosmic unity between humans, nature, animals, the cosmos, aliens. You know, we would all finally recognize ourselves as part of this one uh, substance, and uh, we would understand our place in everything. Um, and there would no longer be distinctions between humans and animals. There would no longer be distinctions between uh, animals and objects, even. So, like. Posadists were actually taught to treat objects well and not like uh, like one militant says that uh, he was ashamed of like kicking a can down the street because he was like being mean to the can, you know. Um, so a very cosmic idea. But again, it sort of has its roots in this messianic Marxist lineage, because uh, what you know, where does capital begin? It's like, look at all these objects around us. They actually tell a story that's a lot bigger than just the object itself. You know, these, these objects actually have this dual nature and part of that nature tells this uh, immense story of exploitation and primitive accumulation and uh, colonial conquest. And then, you know, uh, um, so we, we actually shouldn't just think of objects as just these inert things that we use. We should uh, um, have this more unitary total vision of the world that we're in. So I think Posadas understood that, and I, th- I think he believed that revolution would resolve this uh, this tension between subject and object. Um, you know, but I would say that that tension is more about uh, the productive process. But uh, at the same time, Marx does talk about the way uh, human the, the idea that humans have to master nature is is part of our alienation. And so I think Posadas was on to something there. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, some of the, you know, angles, I believe, has some work on the dialectic of of nature or even I think stepping, you know, back a generation, you could look at, uh, you know, the second uh, volume of 
Hegel's encyclopedia, right, which is the philosophy of nature, where he is really, I think, to use the language that you just used, which I think is the right language, he is in some sense attempting to uh, reconcile the subject and the object in a uh, like within material space to a large extent. Um, and so what what I find interesting about this is, uh, and I think this is something that I, I've, I've seen you point to quite a few times, is that many of the things that get pointed to as really bizarre about Posadism are in many ways the sort of logical working out of very kind of orthodox um, you know, philosophical ideas and particularly orthodox leftist ideas. Um, would that be a fair assessment that this is is uh, is working out ideas to maybe a more extreme degree, but that they aren't fundamentally divergent? I don't know if he if he's worked them out, but he does understand um, in his idiosyncratic way uh, these deep questions about philosophy. Um, but also, all Trotskyists did. Uh, all the Trotsky's leaders were thinking about these things, you know, like the UFO essay comes from, uh, you know, the late 60s when their group was shrinking, when a lot of their militants were being killed and put in prison. Um, but also the this intellectual leadership of the Posadists thought, well, we're the fourth international. We're this lineage of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trots, uh, uh, Trotsky. Um we have to tackle these big questions now because the big questions are the really important ones. So they start reading uh, things about physics and uh, the nature of the universe. And they read um, Lenin's empirism and uh, uh, imperial criticism, or sorry, uh, I'm saying that title slightly wrong, but it's, it's Lenin's um, polemic against Bogdanov, who is the, one of the main Soviet com, uh, cosmists uh, or, or Russian cosmists. Um, and they they read uh, Engels' uh, Dialectic of Nature as well, and this is where they start talking about you know in, uh, UFOs and and life in the universe. If you're um, a communist and you believe that like what your group says and does is really important, and you also believe as a lot of people did in the '60s and still do today, that we're being visited by a advanced civilization on a daily basis. Um, that's an important thing to write about. You know, that's an important thing to say, like, look, there's this advanced civilization. They're looking at us like children because we have nation states and capitalism and war. Um, we should think about the fact that there is something better and bigger than us. Uh, so that makes sense if, if that is what you believe. And so you just mentioned them, but I wonder if uh, before we talk a little bit more about, you know, that the famous Flying Saucers article and 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 some of the later develops with Minazoli and all of that. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, Russian cosmism, because there's you you have a chapter on that in your in your book, and it and it really seems to be uh, a predecessor of of this sort of UFO interest uh, within um, within uh, Posadism. Well, it's it's unclear to me that they ever read the Cosmist because you know that stuff was just uh, purged by. Uh, Lenin and and later Stalin. Um, there, there there were cosmists who were active in the formation of the Soviet Union, but they had to kind of keep it quiet. But the the cosmists um, originated in uh, Russian mysticism, but a lot of Russian mysticism was sort of adapted to uh, the the socialists and the Bolsheviks, and so the biocosmist immortalists and the God builders and the the Russian futurists were all this sort of like related. Uh, intellectual, artistic, avant-garde 
um, who believe that part of the project of communism would be abolishing death and uh, allowing humans to move through space in a, in a way that um, sometimes is sort of science fiction oriented, like uh, uh, Nikolai uh, Fyodorov, I, I think is his name. Uh, it's been a while since I read my own book, but uh, you know, it was one of the, uh, the godfathers of, of rocketry, recognized by NASA as one of the three most important uh, thinkers in what would become rocketry, and he was a cosmist. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm not remembering his name off the top of my, off the top of my head, but, uh, the, 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 uh, the Soviet scientist who, um, you know, uh, created the ICBM program and then later created, uh, uh, Sputnik, uh, let like launched Sputnik was a secret cosmist. He had to keep it secret. Um, so there was this tendency within the Bolsheviks that had to stay quiet for a while that, thought that uh, space travel and, and space exploration was a crucial part of their political project and their vision for humanity. Uh, and I think it's very likely we would not have a space race today. Uh, we, we, would not have a, uh, we would not have the space race and we would not have the kind of space uh, exploration we have today were it not for uh, the Bolshevik cosmists. And it, it strikes me that there's, there's an optimism to the cosmos that I just, that I find really intoxicating, right? Because we have something sort of similar, I think now, you know, in certain spaces, uh, you know, sort of Silicon Valley spaces. So I'm thinking of, of the transhumanist movement and people like Peter Thiel who, you know, think they're going to live forever. And yet with the cosmos, there was this idea that this was something that humanity was going to do together. It was a socialist project. Whereas much of the modern transhumanist movement, it's, it's the sort of uh, techno libertarianism, um, you know, at times with, you know, particularly with Peter Thiel, it, it's it looks a lot like eugenics and and these these sort of really uh, almost fascistic uh, sort of approaches. And so it's uh, it is it is both something there's something sort of uh, strangely inspiring about cosmism for me, at least. Uh, and also, in some ways, it feels like um, a a way of thinking about the cosmos that has been has been lost to this very sort of capitalist SpaceX sort of transhumanist vision. Yeah, that's well put. And um, I think that's why it, around 2016, uh, the idea of, of fully automated luxury communism and then fully automated luxury space communism, which were ideas that came from um, Aaron Bastani, uh, a, a, a British uh, socialist from Novara Media uh, popularized these ideas and they, they really caught fire, you know, and th these, this was the meme world where Posadas became really big. Um, he was sort of like a spinoff of these uh, fully automated luxury communism memes. And, you know, the, I think the appeal of those memes is that like, well, we can envision a communist future that is not uh, dire and like, you know, tilling the land on your communal farm and, you know, you all have to share one potato tonight because that's all you have to eat. But like, actually, it's going to be more like Star Trek where just everything's automated and we we devote our time to our passions and uh, to the, the greater be benefit of of humanity and uh, all other species out there. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting that there was that optimistic moment. And, and my feeling is and certainly for me, it's past like uh, I think we're now in a moment where we recognize that uh, space travel, although it had this, you know, optimistic moment in the 60s, um, 
now is revealed for what it always was, which was a uh, kind of international territorial pissing match. And so now with the Space Force um, and uh, uh, China and India um, and other countries also uh, militarizing space and trying to carve it out um, for uh, economic and territorial reasons, uh, we understand that there's really nothing good that's going to come out of our relationship with the cosmos until we fix our problems on Earth. And uh, really, that's what's way more important. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of when I was an undergrad, um, one of my my friends, as as a joke, started a remilitarized space campaign. Um, uh, and he, he made these posters and they had like pictures, you know, hand-drawn pictures of X-Wings and it was remilitarized space because X-Wings are cool. Um, and I think there was a sense, you know, at, at this time, what was that? 2005 or six, probably, uh, where you could make that joke because, you know, the idea was, you know, the, the Star Wars project was, was, you know, an absurd project. And, and we all know that space isn't going to be militarized. And then in the, you know, in the intervening, you know, decade and a half, uh, what do we have? We have the development of Space Force. And we actually have a serious attempt to remilitarize space and to sort of bring the terrestrial conflicts uh, from down here up there as well at the same time that we have the attempt to develop capitalism uh, up there, right? So you've got, you know, uh, somebody, um, you know, like Jeff Bezos, you know, we're gonna build, you know, floating factories that circle the earth uh, where, you know, cause that's what, what you want. You wanna live in the Amazon factory where you, there's no possible way of escaping, I guess. <laughs> does, he, does he wanna, I know he wants to build O'Neill colonies, but my impression was that the factories would be on earth and then there would be uh, like Elysium O'Neill colonies in space. Oh God. Yeah. I don't know which of those is worse. Um, part of me, part of me hopes it goes that direction because everything we can tell living in space is a real nightmare uh, because no, no part of your body is designed for it. So right. I'd rather the rich stay up there, honestly. Yeah, um, there was but- actually just uh, it was NASA just released a study that uh, they, they had looked at uh, astronauts blood that they had taken over the course of the last several decades. And all of them um showed signs of mutation probably from radiation and uh being in low gravity and that sort of thing um and so that was from a brief time in space you know most astronauts did not spend a long a long time in space uh and so if we're trying to live our entire lives in space uh you know we're going to either have to evolve into some other species that can handle it um or people are just going to, you know, not last very long. So I agree with you. It's I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think Bezos' plans are anything other than uh, a way to talk about something other than what's happening on Earth, which is like we're heading towards we are in the midst of really serious catastrophe that uh, capitalism and uh, and the international order is not willing to solve. So turning turning back to Posadism a little bit. So you mentioned in past the uh, his article. So he has. Uh, you know, despite the fact that this movement has sort of become synonymous with, you know, let's see them aliens and all of that. Uh, it really seems like there's uh, from him as a person, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, people like Minazoli, but from Posadas himself, there really seems to be sort of just one main article, right? With a, 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 a really incredible title. So it's, what is it? Flying Saucers, the Process of Matter and Energy, Science and Revolutionary and Working Class Struggle and the Socialist Future of Mankind. Uh, which is an absolute mouthful of an article title. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the context in which the article was was written and what he was trying to argue there. 
Right. Uh, so that that was the product of this debate that, like I said, they were reading uh, angles and they were reading Lenin on these questions. And uh, this guy, Dante Minizzoli, who was one of the original uh, Posadas militants um, from Argentina, um, had always been interested in the UFO phenomenon. Right after Roswell happened, there was UFO sightings all around the world. And, uh, you know, in a in a party meeting, he said, look, these are aliens visiting us. We have to take this seriously. Um, but he was told to, you know, can it at the time. And so uh, 20 years later, um, in the uh, the late 60s, he says, all right, well, now I think we should start talking about this UFO phenomenon again. People are still seeing UFOs. People believe in it. Um, people are having encounters with aliens. And, uh, you know, as a party, we ought to say something about this. And a lot of the rest of the uh, the intellectuals in the group disagreed. And Posadas weighed in and uh, gave a uh, an intervention, a speech uh, about this debate. And that was the this essay that you mentioned. That was uh, most of the uh, essays, uh, uh, things that were published under Posadas' name were speeches that were transcribed, which is why they have these long names and these really unwieldy sentences. That was a product of how he, of how he actually talked um, and how he demanded that he be translated uh, uh, word for word. Um, and he says in this essay that, yes, UFO... The UFO phenomenon is real. Yes, they're extraterrestrials. Uh, yes, they. If we make contact with them, uh, they will show us how to uh, advance as a civilization. About how to, um, uh, you know, uh, basically live like they do uh, in Star Trek. He didn't know about Star Trek at the time, um, but uh, you know, everything would be automated. We could, you know, cure all diseases and this sort of thing. Um, uh, but then the second part of the essay is saying like, but you know we shouldn't really worry about that because uh, we shouldn't speculate too much on how they are like worry too much about how to contact them because we don't really need to, we can, we have everything we need right now to make socialism and make communism and the masses are ready for it. They just need us to help them. So it was a way of, of saying like, yeah, you're right. Aliens and UFOs are real, but um, they're going to do what they're going to do. And we got to do what we're going to do, which is, uh, you know, make communism on earth. And this uh, basically works well with what a lot of believers in the UFO, the uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis of, of UFOs believe, which is that the UFOs are uh, here watching us and waiting for us to advance to the next level. And once we do, they will contact us and welcome, welcome us into the Galactic Federation or whatnot. Um, so, uh, and this is also, by the way, what Carl Sagan and Josef Shklovsky wrote in the 1966 uh, Intelligent Life in the Universe, which was a very empirical, uh, scientific argument that there are a lot of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, um, that we have the ability to communicate with them, and that we should, because if there are civilizations that have lasted so long that we can communicate with them, they will have overcome the problems that we have of war and nuclear destruction and environmental destruction and such. And so there's no harm in trying to contact them because they will have uh, developed some sort of peaceful coexistence and sustainability. And for Shklovsky, that was influenced by Marxism. He was a Soviet scientist. Um, and Sagan didn't go that far, but uh, I argue in the book, and I think it's pretty clear that Sagan was something of a socialist. Yeah, I've, I've seen other quotes that seem to strongly suggest that as well. And one of the things I, I appreciated was 
you included a couple quotes from uh, Posadas' son, uh, who seems really frustrated about about the way that that they get targeted over this. And, and you know, he says something like, um, "When Sagan says it, he's a genius, but when like when my dad says it, everyone calls him crazy." Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously, like you know, this is kind of an, an interesting, strange little intervention, which you, you make the argument, or at least some of your sources seem to make the argument that this might've just been an attempt to sort of shut down the debate in some sense, which is why that second half is there. But there are these other people, so Minazoli who inspired this, and then uh, you talk a bit about Paul um, Schultz, uh, who s- within Posadism sort of take this and, and keep running with this ball. I wonder if you could talk about the two of them and in their work. Yeah, so uh, that is a really f- fascinating thing. Is like I said, um, this was th- there's this one essay written. It was sort of to settle the debate, and they didn't write much about UFOs after that. But uh, they did. You know, it was a, the official line of the Posadas that the UFOs are real and they're aliens. And so after Posadas dies, um, at least two uh, important members of the Posadas International become ufologists full time. One of them, Minazoli. Um, begins to write about uh, like expanding this idea that was written in the, the flying saucers essay um, and actually trying to take this idea into UFO circles and say, uh, uh, you know, around the, uh, the end of the Soviet union say like, look, um, there's no, you know, this is a, a, a unipolar world. Now um, the imperialist States are going to have to justify their military budget somehow they're going to give you information that the aliens are here to harm us and that we have to develop uh, weapons that can fight aliens. But it's not true. The aliens are here to help us. The aliens are here to help us move to the next level. And it's a threat to, uh, to capitalism. So that was his big intervention or you know, how he spent the last years of his life as this sort of uh, more science oriented ufologist. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Schultz was uh, a little bit more on the schizo end of the ufologist spectrum. Uh, he believed uh, in the work of this guy, uh, Billy Meyer, um, who, you know, claimed that these uh, Plajoran aliens were constantly contacting him throughout his life and giving him these messages. And Oh, I love that music. The truth is out there. International speaker, author, filmmaker, and UFO expert and scientific researcher, Michael Horn. I'm so excited. He's here to share his truth. He's actually touring the world as the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer UFO contacts. Thank you so much for being here, by the way. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, for those who don't know, please tell us who Billy Meyer is. In a nutshell, Billy Meyer is a soon-to-be 83-year-old Swiss man who claims that since he was a five-year-old boy, he's been meeting face-to-face voluntarily with human beings from another star system, and he's proved it through his evidence. And apparently he's getting messages from these extraterrestrials, right? He's published to date over 45,000 pages of information, and the purpose that we are coming forward with now is the urgency because of the specific things that they foretold and and told him decades ago that are happening now. Okay, so can we get into that? What are some of the things that he has come out and said that these extraterrestrials have warned him about? Well, quite specifically, as when you look at these photos, these are all pre-digital 
non-computer taken with regular little cameras uh -huh. if you will, and he's taken hundreds and hundreds of these 1200 what they specifically warned him about some of that is unfolding right now with this new I think it's called the coronavirus okay. 70 years ago he was given the information about new epidemics that will come from it, the international travel that we're having and this is one of them. There will be several more. There will be specific eruptions of volcanoes, some of which are very pertinent to us in America. So there is sort of a cult around this guy. Um, and, and Schultz tried to intervene in this uh, cult, basically saying like, oh, the aliens were talking to Posadas too and talking to me. And, uh, and so he was trying to, to square um, this sort of mystical uh, uh, alien contact e world with um with uh, the the uh, marxist revolutionary rhetoric of Posadism. um but you know uh, even even that world was not interested in Minnesota or schultz and they were by and large not not accepted or welcome and and so maybe as like a, a kind of a, a middle ground between their work, uh, their sort of very serious attempts to to do this. And, you know, the the more recent sort of memeified version of Posadism, you have a you, you talk a little bit about a series of groups that emerge. So the men in red, uh, the AAA, the Spock block. Could you talk a little bit about these sort of quasi satirical um, uh, socialist ufologist groups? Yeah, so uh, around the time Mizzoli dies, his work is discovered by these autonomists in Italy. Um, they're autonomists or something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, anarchists, Marxists, ultra leftists. Um, and they're part of this uh, Luther Blissett tendency where they do these sort of like art uh, pranks or interventions. And so they're inspired by Mizzoli and by um, Star Trek First Contact. Which tells a very similar story um, yeah. to what Minazoli is writing about, uh, about how uh, you know the Vulcans first contact humans when they reached a certain level um, of being worthy of contact, mm -hmm. and so they they basically start uh, doing what Minazoli was doing, going to UFO conferences and making Marxist interventions, um, and their their first major intervention was disrupting the talk of this. Uh, former U.S. military guy who claimed that aliens were coming to get us. And they, they shut down his talk and say, like, this is bullshit. Uh, we should prepare ourselves to contact aliens because um, actually, you know, we should always be expecting our uh, contacts with the, with the other uh, to, be, uh, to be fruitful. And um, so, you know, pushing that line instead of the one of us being paranoid and fearful, like the Independence Day line, yeah. which comes... That comes out the same year, 94, as first contact saying that, you know, if if aliens come, um, they're here to kill us and, you know, eat us and whatever, um, which just doesn't make sense because there's only so many habitable planets. So if aliens are just moving around like locusts, like eating, you know, every planet where you can get some sustenance, you're going to run out and you just won't exist for very long. Mm -hmm. um, so I think scientifically it holds water, but these autonomists are trying to make a point um, that we should not fear the other, that we should not rally around the military to protect us from uh, external threats. Um, and so the men in red, you know, uh, w was the name of this autonomous group. There's also an anarchist group called the uh, uh, Association of Autonomous Astronauts. And the, these two groups were in contact. And then um, 
around the time of the uh, the WTO protests in the United States in 1999, which was the first time the the European autonomous tactic of the Black Bloc um, be, uh, enters uh, popular consciousness in the United States. Uh, there's a Spock block um, in uh, in the Northwest that uh, you know you know uh, dresses all the same, but as like uh, as Vulcans and attempts to intervene in the anti-globalization movement, arguing for a, uh, uh, some sort of rational approach. And I, I, I quote their manifesto in the book. Um, so yeah, these were all sort of satirical things, but um, these ideas end up carrying over into more serious autonomous tendencies, including the Zapatistas mm-hmm. have this uh, interest in um, uh, you know, a, a more cosmic consciousness, not just planetary. Uh, trying to square, you know, uh, indigenous cosmic um, or indigenous cosmology uh, with their politics, and then the uh, the um, autonomous tendencies in in France around the ZAD, which was like this yep, very yep. successful land reclamation project, released an intergalactic communique. And even while I was writing the book, uh, there's a uprising in Chile that released an intergalactic communique as well. And I I think the point of it being intergalactic was just saying, you know, we're not simply trying to reach the left or some political milieu or even like the masses. We're trying to, you know, say something true about the nature of reality and as it's expressing itself through these, these struggles against the state. Yeah. And I think, again, I think there's something really hopeful built into that, right? Because it's when you think of the way that, you know, sci-fi movies often are a great, sort of way of tapping into the unconscious, you know, the sort of communal unconscious, right? And, and what you see in, in sci-fi movies, you know, in the US in particular, uh, tends to be this very militarized, very violent, and, it, and ultimately a, a, um, a narrative about fear of the other. And, and so it, it almost feels like when you, to make that sort of, intergalactic communique is like the ultimate uh, anti-nationalism in some sense, right? It's, you know, I'm going past not only the boundaries of the nation, I'm going past the boundaries of, of the sky. Yeah. I think that's, that's a big part of it. Um, And uh, I think in general, there's just a lot of resonance to um, the idea that there's something bigger than us uh, that isn't necessarily religious or, or mystical, um, but just a sense that, like, look, we are just living on on this one planet and this one part of one planet. And we have to keep things in some perspective. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes that can be really, you know, deadening and like uh, make us feel insignificant. But uh, on another level, we have to remember that we are just animals. We are just part of nature and that um, our nature doesn't want to live the way we're living. Our nature doesn't want to go to war and our nature doesn't want to be uh, poisoned by, uh, you know, uh, you know, industrial waste and that sort of thing. Our, our nature is not to uh, work our entire lives. Um, and, uh, and our, our nature may indeed be to um, understand our place within things in a way that's not uh, a class hierarchy, a class structure. Yeah. And it's, 
It, it strikes me. We last week uh, we released an interview that we did with um, Jeffrey Kripal, who's a, a sort of a prominent um, a ufologist, a very sort of serious scholar out of um, Rice uh, University, uh, I believe. And uh you know, a lot of what he, I don't know his politics at all, so I'm, I'm not sure where he stands there, but it's surprising how similar his interventions into the UFO phenomenon are to, to these satirical groups, right? And I, and I think it comes from a similar, if not the same politics, at least a similar sort of humanistic impulse, right? That he's, he's really concerned about the way that narratives of the UFO can be used to do things like increased defense budgets and things along those lines, right? Because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to think that these are extraterrestrials, um, which he seems to have more of a spiritual rather than a, a mechanistic reading. Um, but setting that aside, even if you didn't believe in, in UFOs at all, if you thought they were a psychological phenomenon, uh, it wouldn't change the fact that they could very easily be manipulated and used as a way of 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 increasing defense like i don't i don't think that argument so i think it was minazoli you said who who first raised that argument that doesn't strike me as an absurd argument at all that seems like the kind of thing that you know uh defense uh corporations would do no i mean we're seeing it right now in in uh, uh the form of to the stars academy which is a uh initiative between uh the u.s military and skunk works uh, uh lockheed uh, martin um mm-hmm. You know, and Blink-182. With, <laughs> with, uh, yeah, with Tom DeLonge as his front man. Um. Back in 2014, I started To The Stars, a media company that would develop science fiction-based films, books, TV shows, comics, all of it. Kind of like a science fiction-based Disney, but for millennials. But I really wanted to make this new project more ambitious, more impactful and to have it make a lasting impression on people's lives. I recognized that there were people in government that wanted to engage the public on topics that unfortunately had a stigma even though they were based in scientific fact. At the time, there was no mechanism for them to do this. Through a series of meetings, I was soon connected to a large group of US government officials from the CIA, the Department of Defense, and Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. These guys were the ones involved in the secretive US government programs that dealt with these subjects and they have all taken tremendous risks to themselves and their reputations to do something that can benefit the world. They wanted to be a part of something special, to be a part of a company that could not only change the way we see ourselves, but also change the path humanity is on. This is, uh, um, I'm sorry to, uh, if you've got some ufologist listeners, but this is total bullshit. They claim that they're working on reverse engineering a UFO from, you know, parts recovered from UFO crashes. Um, but, you know, it's it's come out in time that what they have is just some junk that some people's claim is UFO <laughs> crash uh, debris. And um, so it's just it's it's just a uh, a typical neoliberal private public uh, moving around of funds. But at the same time, it, it launders the reputation of a very unpopular institution, which is the U.S. military. And so I think um, when we see uh, stories from the military, oh, they're disclosing uh, that the the footage is a real footage, and they don't know what it is. And there's these sightings at Air Force bases, and now there's going to be more funding into investigating the phenomenon. You know, you're you're this is all a, a PR stunt, in my opinion. Um, we're we're we've seen the same two videos from Nimitz and Tic Tac uh, for the last uh, I think since 20, 2019 now, mm-hmm. and 
this is not proof of anything. It's certainly not proof of the extraterrestrial hypothesis of UFOs, but it is certainly proof that there is a lot of money and a lot of media and a lot of interest um, in the phenomena. And, and I agree with you, that is what is most interesting. And that's what's most uh, up for grabs. And, you know, I, I don't, I think a really interesting way of uh, looking at how that's played out is I used to listen to the Joe Rogan show on occasion. Um, and he was a big skeptic of UFOs. He was like, I did some bullshit discovery channel show and all the UFO stuff was fake. You know, I investigated it. It's not real. And now he's become one of the most credulous dolts for grifters uh, um, like Jeremy Corbell, um, just believing everything that they say. Uh, and I think that was there was a major push to do that because there has to be it legitimizes, uh, you know, the, the military to some extent and and defense manufacturers. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Um, and it's. Uh, you know, I think it's it's discouraging. And again, it is it is something that makes me want to, in some ways, latch onto more of this sort of cosmist optimism in some sense, because there is there's just something so deeply cynical about these these sort of relationships um, that is 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 cynical, is cynical in a way that that I think is ultimately sort of disheartening. Um, I, I wonder at this point if, if I could uh, drop in a question, um, because I think we're hitting on some of these areas around uh, with with this discussion of UFOs and this sort of esoteric kind of occulty nature that I think at this point, uh, the the message that uh, Matt left me, I think would be appropriate. Is that all right if I pull that up? Oh, so I'm curious to hear how you think about the relationship between leftist politics and the occult, uh, w whether considered historically or philosophically. Um, and I realize that's a, a pretty general question. Um, I guess more specifically, there is um, a theme you touch on uh, in, in your book. Certainly, there's a revolutionary quality um, to leftist politics um, that sometimes appears as, I'm not sure really what to call it, something like a, a new materialist transhumanism something like this. Um, but then curiously, this is something that seems to show up on the right just as often. Um, and, and so these occult currents uh, that can be found in, 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 both, in both of those spaces is something I just find deeply uh, fascinating and, and a little bit troubling. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering how you think about that. I, you know, I would not say I would not I, I would disagree that uh, anarchism or leftism in general comes from the occult. You know, obviously there's esoteric elements to it um, and uh, those esoteric elements can go in different ways. Absolutely. Like you've got uh, obviously these, uh, you know, kind of fascist neo-pagans. Um, and then you also have like leftist neo-pagans and then the vast majority of them are just apolitical. Um, you know, Starhawk is a, a really great anarchist uh, writer yeah. who's a witch. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I actually I'm actually almost done reading uh, Sylvia Federici's Caliban, the witch, which talks, um, uh, I think, is misunderstood as like an argument for more esoteric or magical practice. But it's it's really about the way witch hunting played into uh, the primitive accumulation process of enclosure. Um yep. But, you know, my feeling about this in general is that 
you know, the, the nature of, of belief is the same. If you're believing in, uh, you know, a mainstream religion you are brought up in, or if you're believing in a marginal religion or a personal spiritual practice, or if you believe in something purely material, um, if you, if you believe in some political thing or, 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 you know, if you believe in a K-pop band or whatever, there's, uh, there, there is something, um, uh, that's the same about all of those, uh, you know, desires and, and interests. And so I don't think it's, uh, uh, there's anything unique about the occult, except that we can say that certain strains of it, uh, are, are rooted in like a sort of reactionary romantic attitude, but that's not necessarily where they have to end up. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say that anarchism is just uh, more rooted in like the young Hegelians, the, the same place, that uh, Marxism is rooted in um, than anything mystical. But as we talked about before, that doesn't mean there aren't these messianic and romantic ideas built in. Uh, but I think, I think Marx was, was trying to struggle against that in some ways. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I'm thinking of um, uh, what is that, that uh, text he wrote um, the German ideology, right? That all of that language of the spook, that runs through mm -hmm. that really seems to be an attempt to to really push a very materialist and rationalistic um, uh, sort of left Hegelianism as opposed to a more kind of esoteric left Hegelianism. Well, I, I think uh, that might be referring specifically to the work of Stirner, who um, yeah. was a, a figure that became very important within uh, a certain strains of anarchism. Uh, uh, but but yeah, that 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 was a um, sort of a, a move within this enlightenment circle to like fully um, look at uh, human nature and, you know, in invert Hegel um, to, to, to move from this world of ideas, to this world of, uh, of, of material uh, class struggle as being the motor of history. Um, and so if that's the case, then yeah, you might find yourself purely in the realm of like a very dry Marxist uh, empirical study um, or you, 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 you might start questioning how it is Western culture ended up at this place. And, uh, you know, like the Frankfurt school did, or, you know, more specifically Adorno and Hork Horkheimer in a dialectic of enlightenment, uh, say that, you know, the, the way that we've disenchanted the world has actually made, um, an uh, experience with reality less possible because we're only seeing things that we expect to see. So in this sense, I think that the UFO or other paranormal phenomena um, represent something that's outside of the realm of the possible, um, that's outside of what science can account for, uh, especially bourgeois science. And so, uh, for this reason, I'm not particularly interested in like the scientific UFO phenomena. I'm interested in the fact that people, uh, especially, uh, I'm especially interested in the fact that people in mass experience things that can't be explained and that something inexplicable can happen at any moment um, in mass. Uh, and that um, could be, you know, uh, a UFO landing and we are welcomed into uh, some sort of intergalactic communist society or it could be uh, a revolution. And I still believe that uh, international proletarian revolution is possible, paranormal as that might sound. <laughs> and so as, as we start to move towards a close here, um, 
I wonder if we could end where we we sort of started, which was the emergence of of what you refer to as um, neo posadism uh, uh, with uh, a figure like Comrade Communicator, and and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what this whole Comrade Communicator thing was and and how it developed. Uh, yeah, so it was uh, it's a. Uh, uh, it was a meme page and uh, it, it was a meme page taking the form of a Trotskyist sect um, that uh, claims to have contacted a, a Soviet dissident uh, who was inspired by Posadas from afar and started his own Posadist tendency. Um, there were no uh, Soviet Posadists. Um, Posadas, you know, had people visit the Soviet Union, but you couldn't really be a Trotskyist in the Soviet Union. So uh, in this, uh, in the the lore of the Intergalactic Workers League Posadists, which is the name of this meme page, um, this one man uh, carried his, uh, as a sort of tendency of one, um, transmitted his Posadist ideas to Comrade Communicator, uh, who runs the meme page. Coney Island, right? Didn't he like meet him on a beach in, yep, in the uh, mythology? Brighton Beach, actually. Brighton Beach. Oh, Brighton Beach. Coney okay. Island, yep. And... <laughs> Uh, and so this this uh, this old Soviet man walks up and down the beach, communing with the dolphins, um, and uh, and you know watching the stars for the space comrades, and uh, gives messages to followers of the Intergalactic Workers League Posadists meme page for them to um, seize the means of detection to infiltrate SETI and NORAD, and uh, you know find the truth that they're they're hiding. Um, to uh, infiltrate the apocalypse bunkers of the rich. And, um, you know, you'll have to see the page in this guy's YouTube channel uh, for yourself. There's a lot of really funny and uh, inventive stuff in there. But in my research, I found things um, in the real lineage of Posadism that are very close to some of the, the jokes and memes that this, play, that this page put out. Um, so, uh, sometimes the humor can come pretty close to the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, I liked at the, in, at the end of your book, in the last chapter, you talk a little bit about, you know, there were some critiques, um, of, of this, uh, these sort of joke Posadism. So the DSA Posadist caucus and comrade communicator and all of that, uh, that there's something kind of mean spirited about all of this. Um, but I think you make a really good case at the close of this, that there is a, a sort of uh, joyful, exuberant hopefulness that comes out of this. So I wonder if maybe as, as a way of closing, if, if you could just talk a little bit about uh, maybe the, the, the sort of positive hopefulness that you see uh, represented in this. Right. Well, I mean, these memes are funny and they're mostly for that purpose. Um, but I think there's a sense among the people who produce and share these socialist memes um, that there is a, a aspect of political education there um, that they are sharing uh, in what they find funny, what they uh, what they desire um, or what they're interested in. And so uh, there is this phenomenon of uh, of people like sort of propagandizing using these jokes and memes in a way that do have some um, real political effects. And, you know, the, the most obvious example of that is Trump's election being memed into reality. And we can debate how, how real that is or, or not. Um, but I think it, it's very clear that uh, a lot of young people today are not being politicized um, 
by uh, the events of their life and the struggles around them, but they're being politicized by what they're encountering online. And at one point, um, I was invited to a Posadist Discord, and the the people in this Discord, uh, as far as I could tell, um, were were serious about starting a Posadist group. And I, you know, I had to sort of rain on their parade and be like, "Look, uh, these things that you you're saying and you think about Posadism are." not what Posadas actually said, like here's some resources, you can look at what this group was about and that sort of thing. Um, and so I don't know how far they would have gotten even if I hadn't discouraged them. Um, but there is, a, I think when people share these memes, uh, a lot of the time they are reaching out for other people and trying to find some connection to like what they can actually do in their lives uh, beyond just the jokes and the memes. And so in the end of the book, I pose this question that we won't know about whether these memes are actually leading somewhere meaningful um, or, you know, uh, or it's just like uh, gallows humor. Like we're just joking about the failures of socialism, Posadas being one of the major failures. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's totally possible. Like I said, I think revolution is possible. And it's also possible that we might be living in a revolutionary society within our lifetimes and some of the, the revolutionary leaders will have uh, shared Posadist memes at some point in their life or had like a little dolphin emoji in their, their Twitter name or something like that. Um, this has happened in the past where people in their youth uh, believe in kind of like esoteric or weird things as part of their political or intellectual maturation process. Um, and it'll happen in the future. Awesome. So, uh, Thank you so much. Uh, before we head out, I wonder if you uh, could share uh, what you're working on now, uh, if there's any new projects coming down the pipeline. Well, I've got a podcast called The Antifada. Uh, you can listen for free at patreon.com slash The Antifada or uh, also su support the show there for bonus material. Um, and uh, I, uh, I work at uh, uh, Woodbine, which is like a, a communist social center in Queens, and we have a food pantry. We've got like movie nights every Wednesday. We have dinners every Sunday. So um, if you live in New York, definitely check out Woodbine um, and, uh, you know, uh, check out my my Twitter at Space Prol and my my blog, um, which is linked there. And you can keep up to date with my writing. I've, I've been mostly uh, researching the uh, the counterculture and political use of the 60s. But that's going to be uh, I think it'll be a long time before uh, that stuff comes out. Awesome. So in the meantime, I encourage all of our listeners uh, to be sure to go out and grab a copy of I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Uh, so thank you so much for being uh, part two of our accidental two-part UFO series, uh, which was not intended, but I think has worked out uh, really well for us. Uh, well, let's really appreciate Let's have a third part, a fourth part. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, can, I can debate the, the UFO guy. <laughs> that sounds good. You can get Comrade Communicator on there. Oh, he's, he's mostly talking about Ukraine these days because he's Ukrainian. Um, so that, but uh, yeah, you, uh, you could, uh, I can get you in touch with him if you'd like. That would be wonderful. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, great to talk to you. This is a lot of fun. Excellent. Thanks again. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. When we learn that the union makes us strong, solidarity forever. Yeah.
in our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms, greater than the might of atoms, the might of atoms, 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 Oh, wait, is it a, a Delusian war machine or some other kind of war machine? It's it's a it's a Deleuze reference. Yeah, you're actually okay, the, right. probably the first uh, person to have uh, <laughs> or the first one of our guests uh, to have, have, have picked up on that. I've read that so. damn book two times. And if you ask me what a Deleuzian war machine is, I, I probably couldn't tell you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I know either. Um, I just I just read that chapter like two weeks ago and I'm still not 100 percent sure. But uh, but Matt picked the name and, and I think I think it works. I think it's it, it creates a little mystique that I think is nice.